0: Hey, Generation Church, we welcome you and invite you to encounter Jesus with us. We believe that through him, we will encounter love and discover our purpose. So take a seat, lean in, and let this message fortify your faith. With no further ado, would you all warmly welcome Mr. Mike Atkins up here. you know what's kind of interesting is that as we've been talking it's like our lives have been uh intersecting for many years and we've never met each other he's like you mean you know him and and I know her and and it's like it's like the connections that we've had over the years is is pretty remarkable so it's kind of like I'm getting to meet an older brother of mine you know I'd never met before but this is so exciting and I'm just so honored that you're Amen. here, I mean, I've had people coming up that from 30 years ago that, uh, you know, we were talking and, and just amazing things. So I, I just feel like God's, there's a reason why we're here. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sam. And you all are so blessed to have what you've got. I'm telling you, I travel a lot and speak in a lot of places, a lot of churches. But when I look out and see across generations of young and uh, all the way to, the, you know, great-grandparents— Um, loving each other, worshiping together, that's the kingdom of God. I mean, that's the kingdom of God in a way that that God always intended it to be. And we miss so much when we separate the generations from one another. And, you know, also, sometimes I go to churches and I tell people that I see uh, oftentimes what I call a culture of flattery, where, um, you know, there's a big smile on the face and lots of, you know, friendly words. But there's a difference between a culture of flattery and a culture of honor. And I see a culture of honor here. I see you all honoring each other, honoring the generations, honoring your pastor, your pastor honoring each other. It's just a precious thing and uh, sweet. And I'd rather be in a place like that than, uh, you know, the most magnificent of buildings with the most incredible of orchestras with just sort of that external shallowness that can sometimes be found. So I'm so thankful to be here. And, you know, uh, I'm doing a series actually down in Atlanta right now. Uh, I drive down there on Wednesdays, and I'm doing a series there. It's, I'm calling it The Theology of Everything. <laughs> so, you know, just a short little small subject. But that's kind of what I feel like every time I start to delve into this topic. I was, I've been a pastor for 40 years. Uh, pastored just like Sam did. I, I pastored out in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I pastored in Athens, Georgia. I pastored in Atlanta. I pastored in North Carolina. Uh, But three years ago, the Lord told me to step down and step out and get ready for the days that were coming. And uh, it's a long story as to how that happened, but I ended up uh, turning my church over. We had a beautiful church, and it was paid for, and all that. Gave it to an apostolic network of churches out of Dallas, uh, Fort Worth area. And we took a one-year sabbatical. And during that one year, the Lord really started honing my calling for the days ahead. And it really has to do with the message that I'm sharing with you. For years, I've been called to a geographical location or to a specific group of people. But right now, I feel like my calling is to this message. And this is sort of my assignment from God. So it's very deep down in my spirit. And it's something that I have a great deal of of love for and a great deal of joy for. I know that I'll only be able to this morning and this evening to give you a little bit of an understanding to begin to wet your whistle a little bit. Maybe the book will help you go further with it. But let me just start by saying this, that I'm absolutely convinced and have been for all of my Christian life, really, that there are two paradigms for how people live their Christian life. And these two paradigms are evident in every congregation where I go. And it's these two paradigms that make the difference between walking your Christianity in a living way and living out of your Christianity in kind of a deadly way, a way that produces dead works. And these two paradigms of Christianity make all of the difference in your experience of victory, your experience of joy, your experience of peace, your experience of purpose, your experience of understanding. You know, if I want to know the purpose of something, the only way I can know the purpose of something is I have to go back to the origination of that thing and find out what the person who created it intended it to be. So if I want to know what a violin's purpose is, and I don't know, and I've never seen one before, and I've never, I've never heard music, and I don't know what an instrument is, I'd have to go find the person who made the violin and find out what was the purpose, what was your intention. Intention is what determines purpose. And I'm going to talk to you so fast that I want to talk past your brain into your spirit. I don't want you to think as much as I want you to know and receive something down in your spirit, okay? If I want to know my purpose, I need to go back to the intention and find out what was God's original intention because I can never unlock my purpose if I don't know what I was intended to be. Well, understanding the proper paradigm of Christianity helps you understand the original intention. And if you understand the original intention, then you'll know forever, for the rest of your life, you'll always know what your purpose is. And you'll never be divorced from that purpose ever again because you'll understand it. But we are lost in purpose. We're lost and confused. And, and so many times we're wrestling and wrangling in so many different directions, trying to figure out what is life about, what's my part in it, and what's my role, and what am I supposed to be doing. And even when we get into ministry and even when we get into the Lord, we, we sort of baptize a lot of that confusion and just bring it right on over into our Christianity, and we start to live out of that confusion. And, and as a result, we live constantly uncertain about so many things. But if we understand the right paradigm for the beginning, if we understand the foundation stone upon which the original intent was, then it gains great insight into the purpose for which we are really called to live every moment of every day at all times. That's why I call it the theology of everything. It's one unified theology that helps you make sense of everything. Every sermon you hear, every teaching you get, every day that you live, every moment of every day, all makes sense when you understand this. So here's paradigm number one. Paradigm number one is simply this. And it's the paradigm I lived the first 12 years of my Christian life out of without without question. It simply says this. Jesus died for me. He did his part. Now, as a result of him dying for me and out of gratitude for that noble act of what he did for me, I am now going to spend the rest of my life living my life for him. He died for me. What else could I do except to say, because you died for me, because of what you did for me, because of that act, I'm going to spend the rest of my life living my life for you in gratitude and thanksgiving for that extraordinary gift. And in essence, my definition of the words of Jesus were simply this. After Jesus died for me, forgave me my sin, he bore my sin on the, on the cross. The Bible says the handwriting of ordinances which was against me, which was contrary to me, he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross in his own body, that he's removed for every, the barrier between a holy God and sinful man, that he has gone through all of this work and he's accomplished all this and he did all this just for me. And now as a result of that, he's given me a new slate. And essentially this is my view of Christianity. There's the way, here's the truth, go live the life. I died for you, go live for me. I died for you, go live for me. There's the way, here's the truth, go live this life. I've given you everything you need here to know what to do. I've shown you the direction that I want you to go. I'm going to be there at the end waiting for you. Along the way, I'll give you some encouragement. If you need some help, call on me, and I'll come and give you some anointing, give you some strength to do what you're supposed to do. But there's the way, here's the truth. Go live the life. And do it right this time, because after all, I shed my blood, I bore your sin, I removed the barrier, I've taken away all of the sins of ordinances that were against you, I've taken care of all that to give you a new start, I've wiped the slate clean, all of your F's, I've turned them into I's, incomplete. Now go and do it right this time. And, and live your life for me. And I can tell you that from my experience in 40 years as a pastor, the vast majority of Christians spend their entire life, their entire life living out of that paradigm and so they constantly are thinking about what can I do to live my life for Jesus because after all after I understand what Jesus did for me and I comprehend and really become expert in understanding the depth of his suffering the extraordinary gift that he gave the incredible actions that he took when I really begin to understand that he left the throne of glory and he deigned to become man and he became a servant into death even death on a cross and and, and he's ascended back to the Father now he's done all of this just for me in order to give me a new start and give me a new beginning and call me to a new different kind of life? How could I not want to just do everything in my power to come up with the best idea I could possibly come up? Involve all my ingenuity, all my cleverness, all my strategic thinking, all of my understanding to do everything in my strength and my passion and my power to pull everything together that I can to live the most exemplary life for Christ that I could possibly live. How could I ever do something less than that? He died for me. He died for me. How could I not spend the rest of my life living for Him? And so, for years of my Christian life, that's how I went about my Christian life. And, and you know, I started out wanting to do everything I could to live my life for Christ. And I I got saved. You know, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I got saved. My father was a television journalist. Did the six and eleven o'clock news on TV uh, back in the days when there were only three stations: ABC, CBS, and, and NBC. He was with ABC, he was a bureau chief. He later ran for United States Congress twice in Ohio. He was a, a w- well known by three and a half million people by face. My mother and father divorced when I was nine years of age. My mother became alcoholic and schizophrenic in and out of mental hospitals and had shock treatments and tried to commit suicide multiple times. My my mother was married and divorced three times. My sister was married and divorced five times. My dad married and divorced twice. My my stepbrother was married and divorced four times with kids from each marriage. Uh, my sister, uh, you know, uh, had a child out of wedlock and then went through m- multiple marriages. You know, I, all these kind of crazy things were happening in my family. And I had this idea, now that Jesus has come into my life, I, I, I came to Christ flunking out of college in a telephone booth. Uh, I, I made a phone call to a Christian television ministry and accepted uh, Christ on the phone. And, and I, I went moved out, dropped out of college, moved into a tent, uh, you know, had a Bible and a guitar and just started falling in love with Jesus. And, and the more I fell in love with him, the more I saw who he was, the more I, I wanted to be like him, the more I wanted to live my life for him, the more I wanted to emulate him, the more I wanted to, to uh, live in gratitude for what he had done for me, and off I went to do that. But there was a problem. Is the problem was that I kept, I kept falling short. I kept falling short. I kept falling short. As a matter of fact, I would read the scripture, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but what I, the way I would read that verse of scripture is all have sinned and fallen short of the standard of God because I saw within this book a standard that I was not living up to. I was trying to. I was earnest about it. When I failed, I felt terrible. When I got back up, I tried harder. But I saw this verse of scripture, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and what I heard was all have sinned and fallen short of the standard of God. And I kept feeling like I was falling short of the standard, falling short of the standard, falling short of the standard because after, all, look at what he did for me. How could I not live up to the standard for him? And that was the way I lived my entire Christian life. And I, I got into ministry And for years, I lived my Christian life that way, trying to think of the next biggest thing I could do for God, the next great thing I could do for God, the next creative thing I could do for God because I have to come up with something extraordinary for an extraordinary God because that's my calling, isn't it? There's the way, here's the truth, go live the life. Don't fall short of the standard because look what I did for you. And that was the whole of my Christian experience until I came to a point where after years and years of trying and doing my best and giving everything I could, and trust me, I was I, all my passion was engaged, all my intellect was engaged, all my will was engaged, all my emotions were engaged, my time, my energy, everything I could do. Giving, giving, trying, trying, striving, striving. Back in those days, you know, we used to go to church Sunday morning, three services, sometimes four on Sunday morning, then Sunday night, then Monday night then, night, then Wednesday night, then Thursday night. That's the truth. The only night off I had was Friday, and then somebody would say, let's have a prayer meeting on Friday. We're getting, you know, we're getting too lazy for Jesus. We need to get after it, you know. And man, I was tongue hanging out, running like ragged, you know, trying my best to live my life for Jesus, but I kept falling short, falling short, falling short. I finally came to a point where I went into my wife one day and I said, you know, honey, I don't like myself anymore. She said, what do you mean? I said, I don't like what I see myself becoming. I'm becoming this suit and tie. Back in those days, I was on staff at a big church in Atlanta and I'd preach from the pulpit on a frequent basis and thousands of people knew me by name. I couldn't go into a mall or into a restaurant. Somebody didn't recognize me. And I was, my reputation was going up, but my actual experience of, of victory and life in Christ was diminishing as my reputation was increasing. <laughs> and and, and I, I got to this point where I was just saying, Lord, what is this all about? And I ended up leaving uh, after 12 years of being on staff of that church and being the next designated, next guy, and I moved up into the mountains of North Carolina and I started church with six people in a living room. But there, I began taking a one-day a week prayer time and I would go on Thursdays up to the top of a mountain and I'd take a carafe of coffee and a, sometimes a, take my Bible and take a, a hammock or something. I just went up there and started spending time with the Lord. And all, over the years that I was there, God just began to reveal and speak to me about a completely different paradigm of Christian living. And by the way, it wasn't me that came up with it. I had read about it and never really understood it from watching. I'd read about it from Hudson Taylor. I'd read about it from Major Ian Thomas. I'd I'd read about it and touched it from many different speakers and many different writers throughout the generations of the church. But candidly, it was something that I could never understand. I'd never grasped until the Lord began to show me bits and pieces of this. And then I began to see not only in Scripture, but began to see through many of the writings that I'd read for years. And the Lord began to show me the clarity of what they meant. And simply this... It's going to sound like a semantical difference, but it's the difference between life and death, I'll really tell you that. You see, paradigm number one is that Jesus died for me so that I could now live for him. He did his part. His part's mostly over. Now it's my part. It's my turn. It's my time. But the fact is that that's a complete misunderstanding of the core Christian message because the core Christian message is that Jesus died for me to qualify me so that he could live through me. He could live through me. Not me live for him, but him live through me. I want you to look just real quickly, one verse of scripture, Romans chapter five, look at Romans chapter five and verse six. Romans five, verse six, it says this, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly for scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die but god demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we christ died for us much more then having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him verse 10 for if when we were enemies We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You see, Jesus did not die on the cross to save you, He did not die on the cross to save you, He died on the cross to reconcile you to God he died on the cross to remove the barrier between you and a holy God the barrier that came as the result of man's sin and us being born in and fashioned in and after the sin of Adam and us being without hope and without God in the world cut off from the life of God there was nothing man could do to bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful man the only hope was that God would do something to bridge the gap and he did in sending his son to bear our sin to remove the stain and remove the barrier and reconcile us to the father the death of Christ the cross of Christ is all about reconciliation and by the way if we don't believe we're reconciled to God and we believe that there's something yet to be done to be reconciled we're basically saying his death was in vain if we think that his death was not sufficient, then we are not yet reconciled to God. But if his death was sufficient, the reconciliation is over. When Jesus said it is finished, he was talking about the reconciliation. The barrier is gone. Every problem between man and God is removed. Everything that would keep us from being qualified for the ultimate purpose and intent that God originally had has now been removed. Now you're reconciled. You're reconciled. You qualify. It's gone. Every problem that would keep you from fulfilling the ultimate purpose that God had in his original intent is removed. We are not saved by his death, though. We're reconciled by his death. Why? So that we could be saved, not by his death. We could be saved by his life. You see, salvation is not something that happens. Salvation is something that is happening in me all the time. Salvation is the wholeness, the power, the spirit, his life, his strength, his capacity, his ability, his fruit, his gifts, his ability operating in me and through me at all times. Salvation is something he does by the power of his life in me. And the whole reason why he went through all that he went through to reconcile me is to qualify me so that I become a container of his life. And then he could save me, not by his death, by his life, by the power of his life. He could bring about a transformation through me, such a strong transformation, such a remarkable transformation that what ends up happening in essence is that we become like what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I'm now living, I live by faith, not in me, not in me, not in me not in what I can do for him. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the message of the paradigm of core Christianity is not Jesus died for you so that you could live for him, your life for him. It's that Jesus died for you to reconcile you to him, to remove the barrier, to make you holy enough that he could come and live inside of you by the power of his life and then begin to save you by the power of his life in you so that in essence, Christ begins to live through you, not you live for him. In fact, this is not a rescue effort or a plan B, but from the beginning of time, this was always God's intention for man. His very beginning plan was that he would live in us. From the very beginning, he created us to become vessels of his life. This is not something he had to do after the fact of the fall of man. This is something he intended to do before man fell, was to place his life inside of man. That's why in the garden there were two trees. One was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By the way, it was the tree of the knowledge of good, not just the tree of the knowledge of evil. It was essentially the tree that would give man the capacity to make a decision for himself how he was going to live his life. You don't need God anymore to be a man. You can be man without God. You can be a violin without a violinist. You could be a piano without a pianist. You don't need God. You can be a car without a driver, you can be your own driver. You can be your own God. All you need is a little bit of knowledge. That's the problem. You don't have enough information. If you just get educated enough, you get enough information, you get enough insight, get enough data plugged into the computer, then see, you can do it all. You can make your own decisions. You can make your own choices. You can decide for yourself what your purpose is. You can decide for yourself what your life is meant to be. But you see, there was another tree in the garden called the tree of Life. Both were pointed out to man, and then God said, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. He didn't say you will eventually die. He said on the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And on that day when Adam and Eve chose knowledge of good and knowledge of evil and did not speak to, ask about, inquire of, or partake of anything related to life. On that day, the Bible says, they surely died. But Adam and Eve lived many years after that, intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, physiologically. They lived. They continued to have children. They went on and were kicked out of the garden. So in what way did they die? They died in the spirit. Man was created body, soma in the Greek, Soul, psyche, in the Greek. Spirit, pneuma in the Greek. Body, soul, spirit. In the image and the likeness of God. The Bible tells us in John chapter 4 that Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well and he said to the woman, the woman said to him, where do you worship? Do you worship down here? Do you worship up in the mountain? Do you go to the temple? Do you go here? He said the time is coming and now is when those who worship the Lord must worship him in spirit and in truth because God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So when God created man in the image and after the likeness of himself, he created man spiritually alive, with a mind, a will, emotions, and with a physiological body of senses and passions and appetites. But he intended man to become the container of his life, the zoe in the Greek language, the life that God himself possesses. Eternal life only exists in one being, God. Only God has lived forever, and the only way I can become a partaker of tenor life, eternal life is his life has to somehow find resonance inside of me. And so there had to be a, a transformation to take place. He created me somatically, physically, suke, he created me with a mind, will and emotions and numa with a spirit that he might put his zoe, his life in my human spirit. And then he would then become the animating and dynamic power and strength of what I was. He created me perfectly to become the temple of his presence and of his life. That his spirit would live in me. That was always his intent from the very beginning. But when man chose not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, instead, or the tree of life, instead he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When he partook of that, his spirit died. He was still alive intellectually. Emotionally, volitionally, physiologically. He had appetites, passions. He had brilliant mind. God cre- had created him with a brilliant mind. But off he went into the world not having any understanding at all that his ultimate plan and purpose was always to become a container of the life of the Lord, that the Father's life would be expressed through him the same way the breath of a flautist plays a flute, that it would be the very life of the spirit that would express himself through us. Do you know that there's only one of you that has ever been made or ever will be made? You don't just happen to belong to the, to the flute section or to the, to the Sam Fine section. There's just one section called Sam Fine. He's got one instrument that God made and then he never made another one. Can you imagine an orchestra where every instrument was a one of a kind instrument that would never be made before, never be made again? and all of them were under the direction of one single breath, that's exactly what you are. And there's never going to be another one like you. God created you to be a -a one-a-kind, irreplaceable expression of his life to glorify him and to give expression of his nature and character. That's the reason why we were created, okay? What difference it would make if you got up in the morning and said, my goal today is in gratitude for what Jesus made me to do, which is he made me to live my life for him after he has removed all the mess that I did, paid the price for it, cleaned the slate, given me a new start. Now he said, there's the way. Here's the truth. Go live the life. What difference it would make in how I would set about my day how I'd set about my life, how I would set about my choices, my decisions. Based upon that perspective versus if it were true that Jesus said, I died for you to reconcile you to myself, to put you into a position to qualify you, that I could put my life inside of you and I could begin to express my life through you. What difference would it make in how I faced my day? You see, if I'm over here, if I'm over here, I got a problem. Because over here, what I have is knowledge. I got this book, after all, right? And man, not only to get the knowledge of good and evil, I got good and evil right here. There's all sorts of knowledge in here, all sorts of information. If I want to know what's good, what's evil, I can find out right here. I can look it up. Find out what's good, what's evil, what's good, what's evil. But she said, "There's a problem with knowledge. Knowledge in itself has no dynamic attached to it. If this is a manual for how to run a race car, I met a race car driver back there, and I know I can look here and find out where the how to change the plugs, how to maintain, what kind of fuel I need, how to what kind of air pressure." I can what not to do how to how to how to maintain the, the engine how to maintain the shot I can look here know everything about that car and how it's supposed to run based on this manual but the manual itself gives me no capacity to actually run the car I have to have fuel to run the car. There has to be dynamic attached to knowledge. In the tree of knowledge of good and evil, I get all this information, but the problem is the fact that I know what's right doesn't mean that I have any pa- capacity or power to do it. I just know it. The fact that I know what's wrong does not give me any capacity by that knowledge to not do it. All it does is let me know when I did it wrong or when I'm not doing it right. I become an expert, a, a brilliant expert on what I'm not doing. And as a result, with all of that knowledge and all of that information, why is the tree of knowledge produce death? Because there's no life in knowledge. There has to be a dynamic attached to knowledge to make knowledge have the capacity to actually be implemented. Paul the Apostle talked about it in Romans chapter 7 when he said, what to do I know. I've got what to do down. And what not to do, I know that. I know what to do and I know what not to do. But I keep finding myself doing what I don't want to do. And what I do want to do, I'm not doing. And what I don't want to do, I keep doing. And I keep doing what I don't want to do. And what I don't want to do, I keep doing. What I do want to do, I can't do. And I keep doing and I can't. do. And then he says, knowing what to do, I've got it. i got it. But he says these words, but the power to perform it, I do not find Knowledge, no matter where it comes from, does not contain with it the capacity or the dynamic to actually do it. It only has the capacity to tell you what you should be doing, or what you shouldn't be doing. That's why knowledge can only produce death, because there's no life in the knowledge. There has to be a fuel source. There has to be a dynamic. There has to be an animating power that takes you beyond the power to know what to do to the power to perform what you know what to do. And Paul the Apostle got to the place that I think every human being has to get to eventually, and I believe most people in the church have gotten to, and somehow they've either quit the church, they said, I can't do it. I tried, and I can't do it. It doesn't work. I'm, I'm just not one of those those people that go to church and seem to be able to do this I can't do it so I'm I'm just not one of those or they become experts at faking it hi brother how are you? (laughs) praise God good to see you and you and you and you and you We expert at masking okay or they live in a constant state of guilt, shame, condemnation constantly feeling that they are a disappointment to God because they can't live their lives for him as he is expecting them to. After 12 years of my Christian life, I became convinced that when I finally got to that point where I said to the Lord, Lord, I, I can't do this. I can't do it. I really thought that the Lord would say, Mike, I am so horribly disappointed in you. After what I've done for you, this, you quit? You can't do it? Man, I thought you were one of the ones. I really did. I thought you were one of the ones. That was what what I thought God would say. When I finally got to place, 12 years, here's how I I describe this. You know, it's like the Lord would say, okay, Mike, um, Lord, I want to live my life for you. Okay, do this. Okay, did it. I want to live my life for you. Okay, do this. Okay, did it. I want to live my life for you, Lord. Okay, do this. (laughs) <laughs> did it oh did it. oh man okay Mike I want you to do this I can't I can't do it that's the point well, I thought Jesus would say I'm so disappointed in you what he said to me is are you sure you can't do it I can't do it Lord you sure yeah thank God you finally figured that out. Are you sure you don't want another couple years at this? Of you living your life for me. I, I mean, I'm here. If he, I, I got the time. I thought that's what he was going to say to me. But what he said to me is, Mike, I have, but you the stubbornest son I've ever seen. Twelve years of you trying to live your life for me. You finally got done with that. Yes, Lord. Okay, good. Now that we're at the end of you, you're at the beginning of me. Now that you've run out of you, I can introduce you to what you were created to actually be, which is the container of my life. I'm going to tell you something. From the day you get saved until the day you get to that point, in your life, that's God's number one agenda in your life. That's it. And you know how he gets you there? Failure and futility. You know, the Bible says God actually subjected the entire universe to futility. God subjected the universe to futility so that men would search after and seek after him and find him. You see, what gets us to the end of us is us. The first time we come to the cross, we usually come sick of our sin. And we're sick of the guilt and the shame and the failure and the, all the feelings that we feel of letting ourselves down. We come sick of our sin. But for me, I came back 12 years later to the cross sick of myself, sick of me, not what I did, who I was without him. And thinking I was a disappointment to him, I discovered that for 12 years of my life, I thought I was on all this agenda of all these things, great things I was doing for God, but there was only one agenda in God's mind, get him to the end of himself. Get him to the end of himself. Push him to the point where he quits believing in him, where he quits living his life by faith in himself and his ability to live his life for me. Paul the Apostle, most religious man that ever lived. He said in regards to the ceremonial law, I was faultless. I washed my hands every time I was supposed to wash them. I kneeled where I was supposed to kneel, spoke what I was supposed to say, showed up where I was supposed to show up, brought the sacrifice I was supposed to bring. Everything I was supposed to do, I was faultless. But he said when I compared my faultlessness of me living my life for him to, to Christ and his right standing and his life through me, he said, I looked at what I'd done. I'd smeared myself with dung thinking, what do you think, Lord? How's it going? What do you think? He said, I abandoned it all that I might be, that I might be found in him. So all this leads to a simple idea a simple idea that you can spend the rest of your life delving and plumbing the depths of, I will tell you, if you'll give me the chance to share as much of this with you as I can in the relatively short period of time that I have, this entire book will change for you. Because I used to read it like this. Oh, I got to do that. I forgot. Oh, I got to do that too. Oh, darn. Well, praise God. Oh, no. Oh, no. Here's I, I call it spinning the plate Christianity. You know, on the poles, I gotta pray, gotta pray, gotta pray, gotta pray. I got prayer going. I got prayer going. Prayer going. Oh, up, 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 up. Love your wife. 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 Oh, prayer. Go back to prayer. Oh, love your. Wife. Oh no, get over here. Got another one going. And then crash and burn. Oh God, I'm so sorry. I intended so much to do there. I, I meant to. So give me another plate. Okay, I got another plate. Okay, we're going to go again. And off I went. I spent my whole Christian life that way. And mostly I was hearing, kaboom, kaboom, (laughs) kaboom. I got to go, 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 go. Because my whole view of what it meant to be a Christian was I've got to live my life for him. I've got to live my life for him. I've got to live my life for him. There's a problem with me living my life for him. If I'm going to live my life for him, I only have one source to draw upon to do that. Only one. It's called the flesh. By the way, what does the flesh consist of? Your mind, your will, your emotions, your body, your appetites, your passions, the totality of who you are apart from his life in you. That's you. That's called the flesh. I have to tell you something about the flesh. Jesus said the flesh profits nothing. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus said that the flesh is in contradiction to the spirit. They're not not compatible. They can't become partners. The flesh cannot be managed or harnessed to serve God. The only thing the flesh can do is be superseded by a greater power. You cannot manage and you cannot harness your intellect, your emotions, your will, your physiological body. You cannot manage or harness your flesh and get it to work for God. You can't do it. But Jesus, by the power of his life in you, can supersede the power of sin and death which is in your members and set you free. Remember Paul the Apostle, he said, Oh wretched man that I am! O wretched man that I am, Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I know what to do, but I can't do it. I know what not to do. I keep doing it. I don't know what to do. I got all the information. I got the data. I got the, all the information I need. I've gone to the discipleship classes. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I know every plate I'm supposed to spin. I know all of the information. I've got it completely down. I'm an expert on what I'm not doing. I know it. I know it. I know it. I know it. Oh, wretched man that I am. Where can I go to be delivered from this? That's not what he said. What can I do to be delivered from this body of death? That's not what he said. He said, who? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then what did he say? Look at Romans 8. Romans 8.1. I'm just going to go a couple minutes more. Romans 8.1. Just trying to wet your whistle. Romans 8. Romans 8 Romans 7.25, right before I thank God. O wretched man who will deliver me from this body of death. 7.24, 7.25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin, there is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh. Who do not walk according to the flesh. They're not trying to harness, manage, engage, employ their flesh to live for Christ. Instead, they're walking according to the Spirit. Look what he says in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is what sets me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, that's knowledge, could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So here's the idea. What is it that can set me free from the law of sin and death which is in my members? What is it that can deliver me from the capacity and power of sin? What is it that can give me the ability to see a life being expressed through me that matches what I'm seeing here? It is not me redoubling my efforts, gritting my teeth, pulling myself up by my bootstraps, determining I am going this time to live my life for Jesus. It's not about me rededicating my life, rededicating my life, rededicating my life, rededicating my life. My life. I I know one kid got baptized 12 times. I mean, literally, he he just kept thinking it didn't take. It didn't take. It didn't take. But, you know, even if you only got baptized once, there are millions of people and Christians throughout the church that are still trying to rededicate their life for Christ, rededicate their life for Christ. Jesus is not interested in the rededication of your life. He's, intrad- he's introduced a different life into you, his life. What he wants you to know is that the spirit of a life, Christ Jesus, who is in you, is alone. What can give you the power to see that life actually expressed through you is the power of his life, the power of his life, the power of his life, not your life dedicated, his life unleashed in you is the secret that makes all the difference in your life in Christ. You cannot live your life for Jesus. You can't do it, saints. You cannot do it. You know, the Bible says that your flesh has a quality. It's incorrigible. The way Paul said it is, I know that in me, then he clarifies, that is, in my flesh there dwells no good thing. Apart from him, my flesh is incorrigible. But the Bible says that you and I have been born again, Peter tells us, by an incorruptible seed. A seed of his life has been placed in us, which is incorruptible. His incorruptible life has been put into our incorrigible flesh. I love the fact that it doesn't say that it's an uncorrupt seed. It says it's an incorruptible seed. An uncorrupt seed is a seed that's not corrupted. Well, give it to me, I'll corrupt it. Amen? (laughs) But no, he says, the seed of my life that I've put in you is incorruptible. You can't corrupt it. And when you put an incorruptible life into an incorrigible flesh, the incorruptible life is more powerful than the incorrigible flesh. And something can begin to happen in your life that you could never comprehend. I'm going to tell you that this evening, I'm going to share some things with you that I will almost guarantee you've never heard in your life, but they're right smack dab in the scripture that will transform your understanding of from beginning to end what God's actual intention was. You know, what was Paul's cry? What was Paul's desperation as a pastor, an apostle to the church of the New Testament? What was his cry? Oh, saints, if you would just know more. Just no more, just no more. Then you would do better, do better, do better. You know what Paul's cry was? Galatians 4 verse 19. My little children of whom I travail again in birth until Christ be formed in you. For for, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. First John says it this way. This is a testimony. God has given us eternal life. And that life, God has given us eternal life. And that life, that life that he's given us is in his Son. He who has the Son has that life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life. I didn't come to give you more and better commandments I came to give you life. I'm going to share with you this evening what is the role of this in your life. It's a powerful, powerful role. But this, divorced from his life, is a chain around your neck. This, connected to his life, becomes a testimony, not of what you're supposed to do for him, but what he's promising to do through you if you'll get out of his way and teach him how to do it. Let him teach you how to do it. You know, I'll close with a just a story to give you just a little beginning thought of this. Years ago, I was a pastor of a church and I had a young man who was a worship leader in my church and he, uh, he had come out of a background with drugs and alcohol and I had um, been a part of watching him really get his life together and he was married and just a, a wonderful guy. And there came a point in time where we were well into the church and the church was growing lots of great things were happening he was actually a member of my leadership and one Sunday uh he didn't show up and he didn't call and he was on the worship team it was kind of unusual and didn't think much about it but then another Sunday went by he didn't show up and he didn't call so I reached out to him and I remember when I talked to him on the phone he was just there was a sheepishness about him he was sort of distant and I, I just couldn't seem to get his attention and I could tell the, there was just something going on. And finally I said to him, I said, uh, Scott, are you okay? Is, can, any chance we could get together? And he said, well, yeah, I guess we could do that. And I said, let's make a time. So we made the time and he came to see me, he and his wife, and he sat down and he said, listen, Pastor, he said, I've fallen back into drugs on a pretty bad level. And he said, it's been going on for several months. I finally got to the point that the incongruence between the way I was living and what I was saying just were too painful for me. And I decided I, I just got to give this up. And so I quit. I quit coming. And then he says to me, uh, "I said, well, Scott, Pam was there, very ashamed. Both of them had gotten involved. I said, is this something that you've just been doing privately on your own, or what's?" No. He says, "I've been out partying. He says, people in the community know. I'm, I'm, I've gotten all back in all my drug friends and." I said, "Well, Scott, let's let's do this." I said, "Let's don't let the enemy win a victory here." I said, "Why don't we, you, you can just step down quietly? I'm not going to tell anybody why. I'm just going to say for personal reasons you're going to take a break." And I said, "Let's start doing some counseling. Let me get you some help. Let's start figuring out how we get you past this." And thank you. I prayed with them, and you know, so then they were all set up. Next Sunday, they didn't show up for church. I called. They didn't answer my call. Next Sunday, they didn't show up for church. I called. They didn't answer my call. I started reaching out, reaching out. I, cu- I just couldn't get him back. Every once in a while, I'd get him on the phone, but, you know, he just, I got to go, I got go. So finally, it got to a point where after, I, I was reaching out week after week after week after week. I'm reaching out, reaching out to him. I'm, every time I got a chance just, to try and speak to him, I just threw every everything I knew at him. You know you, you know this, and you know this, and you ought to know that, and did you know this, and this you should know too, and if you didn't know that, there's something else you should know. But I just wasn't getting anywhere. wasn't getting anywhere. Finally, at the end of this time, I got to a point where, you know, I, as a pastor, you have so many people that are seeking help. It's hard to keep chasing people who are rejecting it. And there just came a point where I just kind of had to realize I, I can't make him talk to me, and I have to let it go. It was hard, but I did. And then one night I was getting ready to get in bed. I think I already had my PJs on, and I said to Patty, the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said, go find Scott. And I said to myself, okay, Lord, yeah, first thing in the morning, I'll go, no, go now, go now, go find Scott. And I started putting my blue jeans on. She's like, what are you doing? I said, the Lord just told me to go find Scott. So I got in my car and I drove. I didn't know, have any idea where he was. There wasn't too many places to hide up where we were. But, you know, I got to the one, there was one traffic light in our town at that time. I got to that traffic light. I stopped. I said, what do I do? I just felt like the Lord said, go to his place of business. So I turned left and just a few blocks down there was his place of business. I pulled up. There's several vehicles there. So I got on my car. I walked up and I could hear loud music inside. And I could hear some cussing going on. And so I walked up and I just knocked on the door. And when I did, thank you. When I did, somebody came and they pulled the curtain back. There was a little curtain there. They pulled the curtain back and then it went back like that. And I heard the guy say, it's that preacher guy. (laughs) And there was a long pause. And then I heard Scott's voice and he said, let him in. So he opened the door, I came in, pot smoke just wafted out of the door. I, mo- I almost got high just walking in the door. You know, I walked in, there's Jack Daniels, you know, there's a bag of pot, there's some pills on the table. You know, they're, they're in there hanging out, there's about four or five of them. And I walked in, sat down, you know, and there's nothing like a preacher showing up to ruin a great pot party, you know. <laughs> kind of take the buzz out of it, you know. So, you know, I just sort of sat down and I said, uh, I said, hey guys, you know, and so Scott looked at me, you know, and he just dropped his head like this and he just said, Pastor Mike, I'm so ashamed for you to see me like this. And I looked at him and, you know, immediately all my preacher skills came out and I just started pontificating about, you know, the, you know, condemnation, there's no condemnation. You know, I just started doing my preaching thing, you know, all this stuff, you know. And then I'll never forget, I I looked up and, and Scott was just staring at me and he looked at me like an animal in a cage. And he said to me, you know, Pastor, I get all of that up here. But how do I get it down into here? And for the first time, one of the very first times in my life, I didn't know what to say. I just looked at him and he looked at me and I just sat there and I thought, what do I say, Lord? I don't know what to say. Here's a guy, he wants help. He knows what to do. But how can I? Help? I don't know what to do. And I sat there for just a minute. All the druggies and his wife are staring at me, and I'm speechless. And then the Holy Spirit said to me Mike, would you mind if I took over from here? and I remember saying say what? <laughs> and he said if you want to keep handling this you can handle it like you've been handling it for the past six months <laughs> but if, you, if you'd be open to it would you like for me to take over from here and I remember thinking I didn't even know that was an option You know, because I'm living my life for Jesus. I'm here in the middle of the night with a bunch of druggies being godly for Jesus and making absolutely no impact whatsoever except to bore them with my knowledge while they sit in the cage of their own addictions and can't get out. And I don't know how to describe it. Every time I describe it, I feel like it's so inadequate, but it's the only way I can try explain to you is that for the first time, one of the very first times in my entire life, after 12 years of me trying to live my life for Jesus, I was at the end of myself, and I didn't know what to do. And at that moment, I felt like I did this. And Jesus did this. Just on the inside, just about that small. The minute that impression happened in me, I got up from the stool and I started walking around and I found myself just, and I was just kind of watching. I mean, I'm there, but I'm trusting him. What are you doing, Lord? Where are we going? What are we doing? All of a sudden, he walked into the next room. We walked into the next room and there was a, a, a little sink there and I saw a little basin and I walked over and started filling the basin up with water. I saw a chair, I got the chair, put the chair down, put the basin of water there. I went back in and I took Scott by the hand like this. I took him into the next room and I sat him down in the chair. And all the druggies and his wife came right in. I sat down and then I knelt down. And when I started taking his shoes and socks off, I started weeping. I just wept, 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 wept. And as I was weeping, I remember watching my tears splashing on his feet. I washed his feet, had a sweater on, I took my sweater off and I drew, I, 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 I dried his feet and then I looked up and I started looking for Pam and she was over in the corner, collapsed in a fetal position. And I went over and got her, She. I had to pull her to the chair, she was like no, 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 no. I pulled her to the chair, sat her down, I washed her feet, Took, did that, got finished. When I got finished, I I stood up. I went to the door. I put my arms around both of them. And I said, Jesus has come to your house today to tell you I have nothing against you. Come home. Then I got in the car. I drove about a block. I pulled over the side of the road, and I started crying like a baby. The thought that I came up with that idea is so foreign to me, it would never have occurred to me to do something like that. The next Sunday, I walked into my church, Scott and Pam were on the front row, and the druggies. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could tell you Scott never had problems again after that, but that'd be a lie. But I will tell you this, I still know his wife, I know his son, I know his brother. I see them frequently. The impact of what Jesus did in five minutes in touching his life broke through what I could not do for him in months and months and months of months and months of me trying to live my life for him. Jesus does not want you anymore to live your life for him. He wants to show you the power of him living his life through you. He doesn't want your redoubled efforts, your recommitments, or your rededications of your life. He wants to introduce you to the very purpose for which you were created. And when you find that out, you'll discover that you play an instrument called humanity in a unique, one-of-a-kind way that no human being on planet Earth will ever play it again or has ever played it before. And that there are things that he wants to do through you that he doesn't want to do through anyone else. And that to compare yourself with what he's doing through anyone else is irrelevant to the purpose for which you were created, amen? Tonight I'm gonna share some simple illustrations with you that I hope will bring this home in a new and a fresh way and also unlock some understanding as to what's going on in the world and why it's so screwed up, and the difference we could be making in it. Amen? Lord Jesus, let's just stand together. Can we do that? Lord, my, my first prayer is that your people would experience the relief that comes from knowing that our failure to live our life for you is not a disappointment to you. That if there's any emotion you feel about our failure to live our lives for you, it is shock and surprise at how long it is taking us to find that out. And that it's not your standard that we have fallen short of. We've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory is not a standard we're supposed to live up to. It's a life that you want to place within us. And when you place your life within us, we beheld his glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. For you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And When Christ who is our life appears, we'll appear with him in glory. It's not a standard we're falling short of. It's your glory. The glory of your life through us rather than our life for you. Help us to understand. Thank you for the relief that comes from knowing that. Now, don't let the relief leave us in a state of not knowing what's next. But I pray that you'd begin to show us what does it mean to cooperate with the power of Christ's life in us? What does it mean to step back and let you step forward? What does it mean to really see not the death of knowledge without dynamic, but the life of that comes from Christ in us, the hope. I pray these things, Lord. Do a work in us. Prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.